that's the kind of song you like to come up and preach after uh, when we have already asked God to speak to us through His Word. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5? We are continuing in our look here at the Sermon on the Mount, and I would ask you to open to Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. It's a little bit longer passage of Scripture we'll be looking at this morning, so I'm just going to read again part of it as we begin, and then I'll refer to the rest of the text as we go through the message. Matthew chapter 5, listen to verses 17 through 20. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear... Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, as we walk through this passage of Scripture this morning, again, give us ears to hear what it says, to hear the words of Jesus and to let them speak with power and authority. And Lord, would you bring conviction, show us application, show us how we are to live, in response to what you have said. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. Amen. David Platt is a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, and he made this observation about American Christianity. He said, One of the greatest dangers facing the church is the temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and to twist him into a version of Jesus that we are more comfortable with. He talked about how we would kind of like a nice, middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give away everything that we have. A Jesus that wouldn't expect us to forsake our close relationships so that he receives all of our affection. We'd like a Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts because he loves us just the way we are. We want a Jesus to be balanced, who wants to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live our Christian spin on the American dream. The problem with that, if we buy into it, is that we are molding Jesus into our image rather than Jesus molding us into his image. We are making Jesus something that we are comfortable with, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. We're not the first to do that. By the time Jesus came on the scene in that first century, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had also made some changes to the law as God had given it. In some cases, they added to the law, to what Moses had written, like on the Sabbath. Instead of you know, honoring the Sabbath day as holy, they added all kinds of regulations that you were supposed to keep in order to avoid breaking the Sabbath. 
In other areas, they kind of nullify the law's intent by their teaching. And we'll see that today when we look at the matter of oaths and how they carefully came up with a system to kind of get around truth-telling. And what Jesus does in the passage that we're going to look at this morning is he shows us God's true intent in the law. He cuts through all of the teaching and the additions that have been made and he gets to the heart of it to show us what God really intended. In the passage, we're going to see that Jesus calls us to a radical righteousness. A radical righteousness. Now let me explain that word and what I mean by that just a little bit. You know, the word radical can be used in different ways, and sometimes we have a negative connotation with that. We think of a radical as someone who's really extreme and maybe even a little bit nutty, and so we kind of want to avoid that. You know, we want to stay sort of in the middle more and avoid those extremes. That's not the primary definition that I have in mind here. You see, the primary definition of radical is it means to get at the root It's going to the source or the foundation of things. It's getting to the true intention of what was written. And that's what I want us to look at today. Jesus is showing us the law's true intent. And where we are out of line, he calls for change. So let's take a look. We're going to try to cover the rest of the chapter. uh, And we're going to start with verses 17 through 20 where we see that Jesus came in fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus came in fulfillment of Scripture. He said he came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And when he refers to the law and the prophets, he's using that as a way to refer to the entire Old Testament. The law referred to the first five books of the Bible that God had given to Moses. The prophets would include the major prophets and the minor prophets and even the historical writers like Samuel, who was also a prophet. And what he tells us here is that when we read the Old Testament correctly, we see how it points to Jesus. We see him in every part of the Old Testament. We see how Jesus fulfilled the moral law by his perfect obedience. He did what we were not able to do. He kept the commandments perfectly. We see that Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law by his perfect sacrifice. And when we read the Old Testament about what was going on in the temple and in the sacrifices that were made and starting with the Passover lamb and going forward, we see Jesus in all of that. He is that Passover lamb who died for us. He is that great high priest who intercedes on our behalf. In fact, last night my wife was working on her Beth Moore study and she was pointing that out to me too, how in that study Beth Moore was showing how everything in the tabernacle pointed forward to Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of all of that. And finally, Jesus is also the fulfillment of all of the Messianic prophecies. He fulfilled them by His perfect accomplishment of all things. There were over 60 major prophecies that He fulfilled. There are about 300 other references to Jesus. I mean, it's amazing. The odds of one person by chance fulfilling all of those things would be astronomical. There's no way that it would ever happen. Yet Jesus fulfilled them all perfectly as the Son of God. 
We read in this passage too how Jesus affirmed the authority of Scripture down to the smallest letter. He tells us, you know, that not the least stroke of a pen, not the smallest letter is going to disappear until all is accomplished. In the Hebrew alphabet, the smallest letter was a yod. It's kind of like an English comma, just a little letter there. He's saying that's not going to disappear. When he talks about the least stroke, it's a little line, a tittle that looks like the line that would make a difference between a capital E and a capital F in our language. Just one little line can make a distinction between those letters. And Jesus is saying not that smallest stroke or smallest letter is going to disappear until everything's been accomplished. That's a pretty high view of Scripture, isn't it? I mean, he's talking about its authority, its power. In fact, he goes on to say that even our position in the kingdom will be according to our obedience and teaching of the Scripture. That it is very important that we hear and act on what God says in His Word. And that we teach others to do the same. Do we believe that this is the Word of God? Do we value it? And do we obey it and teach others to do the same? You know, when I look at Jesus' view of Scripture, I mean, that that really settles it for me. If Jesus has a high view of Scripture like that, how can we not? And yet in our world, so often it's a Scripture that people want to attack and undermine and say it's just simply the writings of men. But here Jesus is affirming the whole Old Testament as He speaks about the truth of that. And it will also apply to the New Testament, which is going to be given through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus claims to be the sole authoritative interpreter of Scripture. This is where he takes on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he tells us here that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's a verse that makes us uncomfortable in some ways. I mean, if you were living at that time and you heard Jesus say this, it would have been shocking to you. You would have thought, if anyone is righteous, if anyone's going to make it into heaven, it's the Pharisees. I mean, externally, they looked very impressive. They prayed seven times a day. They went to the temple three times a day. They gave tithes and offerings. They fasted devoutly. They studied the Scripture. They memorized the Word of God. If they're not going to make it into heaven, then who will? But what we see in this passage and in what follows in the Gospel is that Jesus is calling for a different kind of righteousness. A righteousness that only He can give. A righteousness that results in a new heart where we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not an external righteousness like the Pharisees were trying to attain. Jesus would say later of them that they were like whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside, but inside their heart was far from God. And so here again in verses 21 through 48, Jesus will highlight six areas that show the difference between what the Pharisees were teaching and the law's true intent. Jesus is calling for a radical righteousness 
in six different areas. Number one, in our relationships with one another. Look at verses 21 to 26. And he will begin each of these contrasts with the words, You've heard it said, but I say to you. So here we read, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So here Jesus speaks about the command, do not murder, the sixth commandment. And you know, they would look at that, and we would look at that, and we'd say, okay, shoot, that's one I've kept. I mean, I haven't killed anybody. Uh, Okay, so I can check that one off and I'm good, right? And what Jesus is saying, no, that's not what this commandment was all about. There is much more to it than simply not killing someone physically. He would tell us that the prohibition on murder also prohibits anger and abusive speech. That the law addressed and stated a commandment in terms of a simple prohibition, but it was much broader than that. And if you read the book of Deuteronomy, you will see that. You'll see that this commandment, do not murder, also means, you know, if you have a stairway going up to the outside patio on your house, like they had these flat roofs, if you have a stairway on the outside, you put a railing there so somebody doesn't fall off and hurt themselves. If you have an ox who has a bad temper and this ox has given you trouble before where it may gore someone, then you deal with that ox. And if you have to put it to death, you put it to death rather than have it kill someone. The command, do not murder, is much broader than just one action that is being referred to. And so here he's talking about anger, abusive speech, that we must deal with those things too because they will be subject to judgment just like murder. It's in the same line. Jesus is calling for a radical righteousness that pursues peace and reconciliation rather than anger and hate. And he gives two examples here. One of the examples is in worship. And he's saying, you know, if you're in church and you're about to put your gift in the offering plate, you know, and and you remember that your brother has something against you, it would be better for you to go and be reconciled to your brother than it is to stay in worship right at that moment. He's not saying worship is wrong. He's not saying that giving and the offering is wrong. Those things are good. But he's saying first we've got to deal with the heart. And what strikes me about that passage is it's not your anger that he's addressing there, but it's if you know your brother is angry at you then go and make peace. Take the initiative to do that. In as far as it is possible, live at peace with all men. The other example is if you're going to court. 
It would be better to be reconciled and suffer loss than to be thrown into prison. Or figuratively, as he talks about these things here, rather than to be thrown into hell. It would be better to deal with these things now rather than to face eternal punishment. That's pretty serious. Anger and abusive speech are serious matters. Think about that in our homes. We are to speak kindly to one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to say those things that build up and not tear down. And Jesus, who is present in our homes, cares about that. The goal here is health and harmony in all of our relationships. He didn't want what was happening here with the Pharisees where you can put on a mask and pretend that everything's okay when it's really not. He wants us to be honest and real. The law's intent is that we would experience health and harmony in all of life. Secondly, he addresses the area of purity in verses 27 to 30. And he says, You've heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Here he's talking about the seventh commandment. And he shows us again that the seventh commandment isn't just about not having an affair. It's it's not something that you have kept if you just haven't, you know, slept with another woman outside of marriage. It's more than that. The prohibition on adultery also prohibits the lust that leads to adultery. It's dealing with the heart. And I know this is a tough area for men, especially in the world in which we live. You know, I I like watching a football game. I'll watch the game today on Sunday afternoon, you know, and I'll enjoy that. But I hate some of the commercials that come on. You know, you can be watching something that you enjoy as uh, good and kind of fun, and then all of a sudden there are commercials that come on with scantily clad women, and, you know, advertisers use that to sell their products. And that can be very hard for men. TV, advertising, the Internet brings it all right into our home. Pornography today has become big business and it sells and billions of dollars are spent on that every year. To some people, the whole idea of even aiming for purity would be just uh, uh, something that they would laugh at. Why would you do that? This is fun. This is what you're supposed to do. That's not what God says. Jesus is calling for a radical purity that does whatever it takes to avoid this sin. Now when he said, gouge your eye out or cut off your hand, those are figures of speech Jesus used hyperbole to make a point to. Those are figures of speech. 
It was interesting to me to read, though, in 1607 when the King James Bible was coming out and, and there were going to be people, commoners, who were going to get the Bible for the first time in their own language and be able to read that. Some of the leaders in the church feared that they were going to have a mutilated kingdom, that people would take this literally and that they'd be cutting off their hands and gouging out their eyes. But if you think about that, the problem's not in your hand. You can cut off your hand and still have a lustful heart. The problem's not in your eye. It's in your mind. It's in your heart. And so you need to deal with the source. But Jesus, by using those examples, says you need to deal with this seriously. If you struggle with pornography, you need to get help. You need someone you can talk to. You need accountability. You need to see someone who can help you deal with an addiction in your life so that you can enjoy personal purity and holiness. Whatever area it may be here that we are tempted by or struggling, if you know the things that cause you to stumble and fall, turn it off, throw it out, you know, get rid of it, do whatever it takes so that you can be pure in your relationship. The goal here is holiness in our relationship with God and with others. Thirdly, he talks about marriage. And he takes on the problem of divorce and remarriage in verses 31 and 32. He said, It's been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Divorce was common in Jesus' day too, just like in our day. There were two schools of thought regarding divorce and remarriage that looked at what Moses had written in Deuteronomy 24, and they interpreted it. The Shammai school believed that divorce and remarriage were permitted only for gross indecency, which would be like what Jesus is saying here, marital unfaithfulness. The Hillel school believed that divorce could be permitted for any reason. A burnt meal, you got a nagging wife, a prettier woman comes along. You know, for any reason, they allowed divorce and remarriage. But Jesus said no. Do you want to know what God's intent is for marriage? God's intent for marriage is no divorce and no remarriage. That's God's intent. God's intent is that marriage would be a permanent union between one man and one woman. You know, we go back to the Scripture. You see that in the creation of Adam and Eve. Again, it was Adam and Eve. It wasn't Adam and Steve. You know, there's no change here in terms of what God has said. His intent is that marriage is to be this permanent union between one man and one woman. The Bible reports polygamy. Some of the early people in the Bible had more than one wife, but the Bible doesn't promote that or condone polygamy as good or as God's intent. The only reason that divorce was permitted was because of the hardness of men's hearts. And so here Jesus gives what is known as that exception clause, marital unfaithfulness, porneia, anything that breaks that one flesh union 
between a husband and wife. It's not commanded that they be divorced. It is permitted, but that's not God's intent. And that's the way we need to hear the law and Jesus' teaching. And what I would say to you, if you are struggling in your marriage, please do not give up on your marriage. But deal with the hard issues. Keep Christ as Lord of your life and Lord of your home and aim for that. Aim for that kind of health and holiness in your marriage. Work at it and get again the help that you need from others who can come alongside of you to encourage and pray for you. But so much of marriage is a choice to honor Christ and to deal with the issues as they come up. That we will let Jesus be Lord of our life. That we will choose to love unconditionally. We'll choose to show unconditional respect. We will choose to forgive and to honor one another. Now there's more that's going to be said on that in chapter 19. But here Jesus again is cutting through all the stuff that was going on in His world to show us God's intent. In the fourth area, He talks about honesty and integrity in verses 33 to 37. He said, Again, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. The Mosaic Law forbid irreverent oaths and broken vows. What happened, though, was then the Pharisees came up with a very sophisticated way to get around it. They said that if you swore by God using His name, then you were bound to keep that oath. But if you swore by heaven, or if you swore by earth, then it wasn't binding, and it could be broken. It reminds me of what we used to do as a kid. You know, if, if uh, you're as a kid, you know, you uh, are being asked to say something. If you cross your fingers, you know, well, if I cross my fingers, I didn't have to keep it, right? But if I cross my heart and hope to die, well, then it is binding, okay? And as kids, you sort of had these elaborate ways on what was meant to be kept and what was not. Well, that's nonsense. What Jesus is saying here is if oaths that were designed to encourage truth-telling could be used to tell clever lies, then Jesus would abolish them all. The problem wasn't with oaths. In fact, Jesus himself will use an oath formula many times in the Scripture. When he says, like in verse 18, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. You know, he makes this statement. Verse 26, I tell you the truth. He will say that in John's Gospel, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly, I say unto you. And when Jesus uses that kind of formula, He's calling attention to it to say, Listen up. This is really important. We would never think that, well, if Jesus just uses that there, does that mean that He was lying in other parts? We would never think that. He's just using it as a figure of speech to call attention to it. So if you are asked to testify in a court of law and they want you to put your hand in a Bible and to take an oath that you will tell the truth, that's okay for us to do as believers. 
But Jesus' point here is that we shouldn't need an oath to get us to tell the truth. We should always be truthful. Someone shouldn't have to make you put your hand on a Bible to get you to finally tell the truth. It should be a natural part of who we are. But sadly, we have a problem here too. We lie and we exaggerate or we want to make ourselves look good and so we tell the story from our point of view and our slant so that we look better and people might think well of us, we hope. We have a problem, but it doesn't change the standard of complete honesty and truthfulness. Fifth, in resolving conflicts and Verses 38 to 42, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Again, this is a radical righteousness in resolving conflicts. The principle of lex talionis, this eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, was set up to limit conflict. What you didn't want to have happen in society was a kind of escalating conflict between people or families or tribes where, you know, if somebody insulted somebody from another family, then that family would say, you know, I'm going to get back and I'm going to beat up this guy. And then a beating turns into a murder and a murder turns into a genocide. You didn't want to have that happen. And so this principle of lex talionis, an eye for an eye, simply meant that the punishment should fit the crime. Punishment should be appropriate. It shouldn't be extreme. It shouldn't be something that goes beyond what was there. It's kind of like, think about it like this. You know, if you're in a car accident, somebody slams into you and it messes up your fender on the car, you know, it would be reasonable for you and right for you to want to be compensated for the damage to your car. You don't have to ask for college tuition for your son, too. You know, it's like you don't have to go for way more. But that's kind of the way our society is. You know, sometimes people get in an accident and think, I'll sue, and this is going to be like winning the lottery. In Jesus' day, the problem was that people turned it into a justification for personal revenge. The law said, I can do this. And so they would take it into their own hands. And Jesus is saying, as people of His kingdom, I want you to overcome evil with good. I don't want you to fall into that trap. But I want you to be a people that go the extra mile to bring reconciliation. And in the last area, in unconditional love, in verses 43 to 48, he says, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Are not even, uh, and, excuse me, and if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, Jesus' point is that all people, even our enemies, are to be loved. 
And one of the practical ways that we can show love is by praying for our enemies. If you just love those who love you, you are no different than a tax collector or a pagan. Jesus calls us as his children to go the extra mile in this area too, in showing love for even those we would not normally love. Be perfect as your Father is perfect. It's really a statement that picks up on Leviticus 19.2 that said we are to be holy as our Father is holy. What's the problem with that? We can't do that, can we? You can take all of these areas. I read through this and I think I fall short. You know, I get angry. I've had to deal with my thought life. I've had to look at, you know, this idea of wanting to take matters in my own hands instead of letting God just take care of things. I need to love those who are unlovely. All of those areas true. I have to work with as well. So how can we keep these things? The answer isn't to change the standard and somehow lower it. That's what the world tries to do. The answer is to admit our sin and our need for Christ. To turn to Him. And when we receive Him into our life, He gives us a new heart. We are born again. And He clothes us with His righteousness. But more than that, He gives us His Holy Spirit. And when we walk with Him in the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us that He enables us to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. That's astounding me. He changes us from the inside out as He begins to do His work. And just like the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, etc., etc., He also enables us to be faithful in our marriage to work for reconciliation and to be peacekeepers, to love those who we wouldn't normally love. It is a work of God, and the only way that we can do this is by the power of His Holy Spirit in us. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these areas that we touched on this morning, we all can identify the areas where we struggle with the most. And I pray that you would do a work of your Spirit in us to change us and refine us. Forgive us for our sins and purify our heart that we might live in a way that is pleasing to you. Amen.